turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. We are in a series, which is my church word for um, how I kind of plan out the way we preach. So it's not so much Kyle's making it up week by week as much as he's looking at a whole book of the Bible in this case, and we're kind of going through it theme by theme, idea by idea. And so we're tonight in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, which I think is on page like 709-ish of the Bible in front of you, maybe. I might be making that up. Uh, but I, I kind of looked and then all of a sudden forgot. 706 something, maybe Ephesians. Uh, if it says Philippians, you've gone too far. And if it says Genesis, you're way too close to the beginning. Um, we're in this series called The Living Church. Paul is writing to a church in a town called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he's trying to unpack for them what it looks like to be the church. He's trying to unpack for them how they can live into the vision Jesus has for them, that a church is not a building, a church is not a place, it's not even a structure or a denomination, but it is real people living their real lives in the way of Jesus, in a way that transforms the lives of the people that touch theirs. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians get into these really deep doctrinal stuff, and then as the letter moves further and further on, he gets more and more practical, and as we look today, Paul is going to be picking up some of the themes uh, that he brought up at the end of our last sermon. In Ephesians 4.15, my favorite Bible verse, he says, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. That idea of speaking the truth in love is really foundational to how I do ministry and how I equip others to do it. And so Paul is talking about speaking, and it's almost like he gets off on this idea of like, oh, I just said something about speaking. And so most of verses 17 through 32 are about the way that we talk to one another, uh, which is, I think, important because there's some interesting cultural things and trends happening in the church, capital C. Churches are kind of around America that I, I think are interesting in what light of what Paul has to say. There's a certain prominent Christian who lately has been using his Facebook feed uh, to decry just about everything you can imagine. In the last about month, he's gone after Target, uh, Iran, the University of Tennessee, and the Muppets. Um, all of those things on his Facebook page. And while it seems hard to build connections between what is the problem with all four, in his mind it's clear, and the problem is that they are not uh, demonstrating living into biblical values. And he represents this growing trend among Christians, which is we hold the culture accountable for living like we want them to. That we hold uh, non-Christians up to a Christian standard, and when they don't match it, we're going to yell at them, and we're going to tweet at them, and we're going to protest at them, and we're going to do all of this stuff to make sure that they know they're wrong. And as we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32 tonight, I think that we'll find Paul, we'll, we'll find this idea surprising. So let's look at Verses 17 through 19, Paul writes, With the Lord's authority I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do. Gentiles, you remember, in the earlier chapters had to do with anybody that was non-Jewish, but here uh, it becomes a category for anybody that's far from God. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, he says, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they've closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. Just as a side note, I, I finally landed this week from about January until the end of April. We're going to uh, preach through Exodus, and uh, Pharaoh hardening his heart plays a big role in that. Verse 19, he says, They have no sense of shame. 
They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. And when we look at these verses, what we start to get the feel is that Paul is pointing out to non-Christian, people that are far from God, people have yet to step across the line of faith and live like that. He's pointing to them as if to say, uh, he, he, he is pointing out the errors of their behavior, which is what we're used to seeing Christians do. But watch why Paul does that in verse 20. Paul says this, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Paul doesn't bring up the the behavior of Gentiles, of people far from God, in order to yell at them. He doesn't do that in order that they would get their act together and act like Christians already. He does that to make Christians act more like Christians. He wants the church in Ephesus and the church called Regeneration in Champion, Ohio to behave as the Lord is inviting them. He wants us to go up to the standard to which Christ calls us. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore I beg you as a prisoner for the Lord to live a life worthy of the calling which you have received. We're supposed to go up, but his problem with the Christians in Ephesus is that they're lowering them selves down. Paul's problem, I'm going to say this more than once, isn't that, the, isn't that the world isn't acting like Christians. His problem is that Christians are acting like the world and that they've lost their separateness. And look at Paul's emphasis in these verses. He says, throw off your old nature. Since you've heard about the Jesus and learned the truth, put on your new nature. In Christ, you don't just become friends with Jesus. You don't just get geographically nearer to him. What happens is you are united to him and you are given an entirely new nature. Now, these two natures war back and forth inside of you all the time, and that's what we call sin, but the way of Jesus has so much to do with living into that new nature, which Paul's going to outline. But again, Paul's problem is that the church in Ephesus and our church today doesn't act like Jesus. It acts like everybody else. That's what he wants us to see And so as Paul is writing about this, he kind of sets this up and then makes a very specific turn to the way we use our words. Paul's problem is that the church sounds wrong. Paul's problem is that the church sounds wrong. In the middle of the Old Testament, there's a book called Proverbs. And Proverbs is a book full of wisdom principles. It was written by the wisest man who ever lived. His name was Solomon. The vast majority of Proverbs was written by him. And in it, he, there's all sorts of instruction for life. But one verse that has always caught me is Proverbs 18:21, which says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. The New Living Translation translates it as, those who love to talk will have a problem. And uh, Kyle loves to talk. Uh, which is always then makes this verse a little daunting. Paul, what Proverbs wants you to see is that with your tongue, you, you, you have the ability to speak life into someone, to make them feel refreshed, encouraged, loved, accepted, but you also have the power to say just one thing that is the equivalent of just sticking a knife right into their heart. You have the power to wound someone so deeply that they never even really come back from it. Paul's problem is that the church in Ephesus is using their tongues for death rather than for life. Paul's problem is that the church sounds wrong. 
And so Paul in this text wants to address things like gossip and slander and deceitfulness and grumbling and complaining and rudeness and anger and all these ways that the church goes awry by, looking, by imitating the world, by using our words wrong. And so just for the next couple of minutes, I just want to look at what Paul outlined. So let's start in verse 25. Paul's first problem is lying words. He says, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we're all part of the same body. You know, I think it's easy to read that text and say, I'm not a liar. You say, I fill out my tax forms correctly. I, I don't just tell lies, but then as you think about it a little bit more, you start to realize that when you tell a story, you might leave out some details to make you look a little better. You might leave out some details to make somebody else look worse. You might even embellish a story, add to a story in a way that makes you look better, and it happens in a moment. I mean, you're telling a story, and everybody's laughing, and even faster than you can think, you think, if I just add this one little flair that isn't entirely accurate, it'll get them roaring. We say we're, we're not liars, but Paul's words are, stop lying to one another. His words are, always be the most honest with your words, always giving the clearest facts. Paul warns us against angry words. In verse 26, he says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. You know, it's possible to be righteously angry, to be angry when justice or goodness or righteousness is violated. There are things that should make you angry. Human trafficking, for example, should make you angry. That some guy in Thailand sells his daughter for like six pack of beer into slavery for the rest of her. I mean, you know what I mean? Like this is not okay. We, we want to be angry about that, but there's another kind of anger. And Paul says that anger has the power to control us. You know, we, in our marriages, we say angry words. In our relationships, we say angry words. We say angry words to our siblings. We say angry words to our parents. We say angry words to our coworkers. In a moment of frustration and of disappointment, out of our mouth before we can even know it, just comes this angry word, and it wounds our relationship with them. It does. And so Paul has this instruction where he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And, and let me tell you why. It's because when you go to bed angry, you don't go to bed at all. When, when you go to bed angry with your spouse, with your sister, with a coworker, I mean, here's what you do. You spend all night just thinking about it. And you start thinking, you know, if I had just said blank, man, that would have really, really gotten them. And then your mind starts to go really off the track and envisioning these major conflicts that have Hollywood-sized budgets in the movie of your mind. And if you only said the, and you know, oh, I'll say this thing and that thing, and, and then maybe your body does just drag you into sleep, but then you dream about it, and, it's, and it's, then there's like this weird person from high school also in the dream, you know, and, but then, and you wake up and, you know, you get a phone call, your spouse says to you, so how, how are you doing, how'd you sleep, and this is what you sound, you say, good, oh, really, yeah, I was fine, I, you know, you, you just wake up. And Paul's problem with that is that when we're angry, 
he, he says it starts to control us. It's, it's we let put the reins into somebody else's hands of our emotions. And he says who in verse 7, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Because when we get really angry and we get pushed to the brink of that anger, we start to think of ways to get back at that person. And a lot of times those ways we want to get back at a person are through sinfulness. If I just really showed them, oh, I'm going to just start gossiping about them. I mean, it just opens the door for other things. And Paul says, stop using angry words. In verse 29, Paul hits on another kind. He says, well, look at verse 28, just really briefly, that I think is interesting. Because in this section on words, Paul throws in this random thing. He says, by the way, if you're a thief, quit stealing. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Paul. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Isn't it interesting? A couple things. First of all, that he says that we work hard so that we can give generously. It's an interesting connection. But he also says, I love that he says, if you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for doing hard work. I love that these things, his hands in this case, which were used for sin, now are the things that Paul says, I want you to use for righteousness. It's like our hand, it's just such an interesting flip. Okay, verse 29. Don't use foul or abusive language, Paul says. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. This verse has been used by a lot of Christians, including my grandmother, to tell me why I shouldn't use cuss words or even words like fart. And I think there may be some validity to that, but especially because in chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes should have real no part of who we are. And it's for this reason that this idea of foul or abusive language, my wife and I were at a marriage conference once, and uh, not a marriage conference, it was a conference for student development for college students, but they had this guy come in, he's a licensed marriage and family therapist, so this is what he eats for breakfast, right, as couples. He's written like five books, but as he's giving his talk, did he tell jokes about his wife that made her look small um, and whiny and needy and angry? And I looked at Steph, and we weren't even engaged at the time. We left that talk, and I just remember thinking, here's this guy talking to people about marriages, and he just, woof. And I looked at her, and I said, you will never hear me talk about you that way. I will ne- you'll, if you know me, you know I don't make jokes about my wife. I don't make jokes about women are so. I don't like when women make jokes about men are so because that coarse joking starts to eat away at something and it devalues something that we as Christians say is important, which is marriage. And, and so I said, I'll never talk about you that way. And I don't make jokes about marriage. I don't make jokes about women because I think those are coarse and foul things that we say to one another, but, but here's the thing. This word foul in the Greek is super interesting because it's the same word that means gangrenous. It means gangrene. And so if you all turn your attention to the screen, I will show you gangrene. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I almost did, but I didn't. Uh, gangrene is when something basically rots from the inside out. And I think what's interesting about Paul's use of this word is, is it's possible to say something to someone that gets inside of them and starts to rot that person from the inside out. You know, I have three younger brothers. Logan and Evan are twins. They're sophomores at Azusa Pacific University. And then 
I have a brother, Connor, who is a freshman at Arizona State University. There's twins and one a year younger, one exactly a year younger. And in my family, maybe in your family, you call that an oops. He was a surprise. And, and you know, it's one thing to joke about that. My parents, you, know, you joke about it, you say things about it, you hear families joke about it and say, oh, he was a surprise. Problem is, as parents, sometimes kids hear that over and over and over again, and they start to think, I wasn't the one planned for. I'm the guy that they had to set out an extra plate at the table because I crashed the party. I'm the one that, that just wasn't really planned on. As parents, I mean, I was in youth ministry for years. I mean, stuff is said to kids, even in jokes, or maybe not in jokes. I mean, you're so stupid. You're not worth anything. And sometimes it's totally accidental. There, there was a time when um, my mom and I, in my senior year of high school, our family walked through a really hard thing. My mom and my stepdad divorced, and I had three, my younger brothers were like 10, 10, and 9, I think. And so I was kind of dadding them. There's a lot of weight on me as I was trying to graduate and get out of there and having senioritis and all this stuff. And I remember my mom and I just really butt heads a lot during that season. And I said to her, she, we were having kind of an intense conversation, let's say. And, she said, well, you know, I'm doing my best. And I said to her, well, what if your best isn't good enough? And that just got into her and started to, I mean, and I can't tell you the depths to which I regret saying that because that was foul and that was abusive. And we've since forgiven each other and we've moved on, but I mean, there's these moments. And again, here's the problem sometimes when we start talking about words is, about 60% of the time, you don't even use your words intentionally to be foul or abusive. You don't use your words intent, but all of a sudden it just bubbles out and you can't grab it back in, you know, and it's out there and floating through the air and stabbing the person in the heart and you can't stop. I love that Paul kind of in the, I think, New American Standard of this, which is how I kind of have it memorized, he says, like, say only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear, you know. Sometimes, too, something that is a joke that's really ha-ha funny in one room, you go and tell it somewhere else, and it falls flat, and you realize, well, that's really offensive. Sometimes something that you joke about, an inside joke, when it comes an outside joke, you sometimes realize, well, that's rude and mean. Paul warns us against that, too. And Paul says, don't use foul or abusive language. Look at verse 31. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness and rage anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Sometimes you just end up saying a harsh thing. I, I say harsh things when I'm hungry and angry, or as we call it in my family, hangry. When I am hangry, I say harsh things, which is why Dylan faithfully brings food for me and for him every Sunday night, so that when we're setting up, I don't say harsh things. When I was in youth ministry, we'd go on weekend-long retreats, and my kids just knew. I would just out I would just say, get real harsh with them. And they'd look at me and they'd say, you're hangry, aren't you? And I'd say, yes. And they said, we'll come back after you've eaten. And I would go eat and we'd have the conversation again. They just knew me well enough. I mean, you just say something and it comes out and it just cracks a person like a whip, this harsh thing that you said. And here's a really good example of, of harsh words. It's when we generalize. And we generalize when we say, you always you always say that. You always do that. You're always like this. You're always like, or you never, you never do this. You never say this, right? You never were. You never did. And when we start saying you always and you never, I mean, I never nevered. I never always. I always, I mean, you paint 
a person, I mean, that's just harsh when you just say a person you never, never good, I mean, wow. Paul says don't be harsh. But he says don't use harsh words. He says don't use slanderous words in verse 31. Same thing, he says don't use slandering words. And let me tell you what slander is. Slander is when you assert that something is the truth about someone, about their motives, about how they think, about how they behave. You assert it as the truth when you have no grounds to say that that's the case. Oh, well, she just said that because she's a control freak. He just said that because he likes to hear his own voice. He just said that because he's so arrogant. She just said that because she is just such a... And we assign motives to people and we spread it around and we make ourselves part of a problem that we're not really part of a solution... I mean, that's slander. And I think the antidote to this, by the way, is by and large to all of this, is just always choosing to speak well of and to someone. When, slander is when we start to not speak well of someone. And you'll catch yourself doing this. You'll say, I don't, I don't want to speak well of somebody, but you know, I, I don't want to be gossipy, but you know, I just need to and, and, and Paul says this fits the occasion. There are times, there are people that you need to vent to. There are times that I just need to dump my bucket to my wife, and I'm probably saying some angry words. Driving in the car, and I'm hungry, and something intense just happened. I've got words. And she just reaches over, and she pats my leg, and she says, you're not going to say it like that in the meeting, are you? And I say, no. No, I'm not. But you need to dump your bucket, as fits the occasion, but I'm certainly not coming in here and dumping my bucket to you every Sunday night for an hour, as fits the occasion. Six months ago in January, we uh, lost, well, probably now more about that, really. Back in January, we lost my grandmother, Georgina, and, and to be on, this is my dad's mom, and to be honest with you, I, I'm, I come from a home where there's some divorce, so my family's a little bigger, uh, because step family has gotten involved, and I've just always been really, really close to my grandma on one side. I wasn't really close to my grandma when she passed away, but as we sat there and kind of waited for her to pass, and the fancy word for that is just vigil, it's just kind of waiting for her to breathe her last. And as we did that, and as we did all those preparations and stuff, I remember Steph and I went to Target to get some stuff around the house. I think I was in the cereal aisle, because when I can, I like to eat my feelings. And so I was buying a box of Captain Crunch just to kind of cope, and by my Captain Crunch, and this wave of grief just hits me. And I start looking at all these people buying their cereal with all of their Target things in their car, and I just wanted to scream at them. What is the matter with you? <laughs> I wanted to say, you're just all wandering around like nothing's ever happened, and blah, 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 and my whole world has changed. And just spent the last four days doing, you know, I mean, it just hits you. And grief is real, and it hits us in weird ways, and it hits us for a lot of reasons. It hits us when we lose someone, and it hits us when someone hurts us. It hits us when someone we love does something that we don't think is wise. All of these things happen. We're, we're just grieved. Look at what Paul says in verse 30. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. I mean, it is possible to grieve God, and we do it with what we say. Our lying and angry and slandering and deceitful and harsh and foul and abusive words, I mean, they grieve the Lord. And we grieve the Lord as the living church when we actually sound like the world. And we cease being the living church. You know, the fastest way 
to kill a church. Fastest way to kill a church is to speak in a way that grieves the Spirit of God. And so Paul tries to show us a way out. Kind of ends this chapter in, I think, a really helpful way. I mean, in verse 29, Paul says, you know, let everything you say be good and helpful. You know, let every, every word that comes from your mouth be good for building up so that it may be an encouragement to all those who hear them. But Paul also says this in verse 32, and I actually used this in Zach and Jenna's wedding yesterday. He says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. When it comes to our words, we just need to develop an attitude of kindness. Now, now go home and read your Bible cover to cover. Let me give you a hint. You're never going to ever, ever going to find the word nice. Jesus never says be nice. Do you know why? Because nice is what we do and we don't mean it. When I was little, my mom told me to be nice to my little brothers when they annoyed the crap out of me. So you'd be nice, but you don't really feel it. Nice is something out here that you do just to kind of get by. You describe, nice is how you describe a person that you don't really like, but you know you can't say that you don't like them. And so, so what's she like? She's very nice. No boy ever brought a girl home and hoped his parents would say, oh, she's very nice. No girl ever brought a guy home and wanted her dad to say, he's a nice guy. And that's what we say. There's always this guy, nice guy, loves the Lord, but boy, is he a jerk. You know what I mean? Like, there's nice always. Paul says, don't be nice. Just be kind. Kind comes from in a, a deep place where we just choose to see and acknowledge the best in another person. Kindness is what happens when I choose, even in the face of tremendous personal annoyance, to respect someone and to use my words in a way that reflects that. He says, be kind says, be tender-hearted. I think there's another way to say this, and I think it's to be vulnerable. I think we develop in our lifetime these strategies of defensiveness, and it starts, we start walking around kind of like this, blocking our face. And then we try to shrink down and get a little bigger, and so we then start to use our words to defend. So if somebody gets a little close, we get angry, we push them away, we get harsh to push them away, we say something foul and abusive to push them away, and we can't push them away, we'll lie to get run away. Paul says to let your guard down. Paul says stop shrinking back. He says you've got to be vulnerable. A lot of the weird words we say are words that we say when we're not being tenderhearted, when we're not being vulnerable. But when we choose to live a life of vulnerability, which, which is scary because it means we can be wounded, but when we do that, our words take a different shape because our words aren't about defending ourselves. They're about giving gifts to other people. So Paul says be tenderhearted. But of course, because if we're going to be tenderhearted, we're going to be kind, somebody's going to step on us. Somebody's going to hurt us. Someone's going to come after us. They're going to say an untrue thing about us. They're going to say a mean thing about us. They're going to say angry words. They're going to say abusive words. And so Paul says, forgive one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You know, here's the deal. To be married is to have to cultivate the skill of forgiving someone. To be a parent is to cultivate the skill of forgiveness. To be a child, especially an adult child, is to cultivate the skill of forgiveness. If you're in your 20s in this room, out of my 20s in this room, here's a skill you gotta develop. 
we got to forgive our parents sometimes. Just do. We've got to let them off the hook. To be a sibling is to forgive sometimes. To be a fiancé is to forgive. To be a boyfriend or a girlfriend is to forgive. To be a human is to have to forgive. And forgiveness is in the toolbox of especially the Christian. Why? Because he says in verse 32, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. C.S. Lewis has this cute thing and does this thing with words that I can never do, but it's always something like, um, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable in others because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And I think we want to draw lines. We want to say, I will forgive up to a blank point. And the hard part about forgiveness is that um, sometimes you forgive, but that it's an ongoing process. We're going to preach about forgiveness in November, so I don't want to like spill all my beans. But there are moments, there are moments that forgiveness is an ongoing process. We, um, we, we were wounded by some people a handful of years ago and then didn't have the opportunity to see them for a time. And my wife and I would both say that you don't know that you've really forgiven a person until you see them. And that process of forgiving them took some time. It took some months. It took me journaling a lot. It took me being intentional. And then a few months ago, we had an opportunity to see them. And we saw them, and I, you know, we opened the door, and I see their face, and the whole time I'm like, what is going to happen inside of here? And it was fine. It was not weeping and so happy to see you. It was not like, oh, go away. It was, hey, I can sit here and talk to you for an hour, and then I can leave. That's forgiveness, and we'll talk about forgiveness and reconciliation, the difference. The hard part about forgiveness sometimes is it's like pushing that grand piano across the room and then waking up the next day to find out that it's right back there. There are days that you get it three inches. There are days that you get it back all the way over, but we have to forgive because to be in community, to be in a church together, to be on a team together, to do anything together requires forgiveness. But again, for, for Paul, for the Bible, for the people of Jesus, forgiveness comes because we have been forgiven. That because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us, he, we forgive the inexcusable in others. And that's why we come back to this meal every week. We, we come back to this meal to remind ourselves that we've been forgiven. Uh, I think sometimes I, 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 when I view communion, I tend to view it as this corporate, this missional piece. But I think one of the things that was impressed upon me this week of just preparing was uh, taking communion every week reminds me that Jesus died on the cross, a gruesome death, for my sin first. Not so that I would be given strength to deal with other people's crap, but for me first. And uh, we're going to sing this song. It's about how big and beautiful God is, and yet he would deign to, to come and forgive us. And so as we take bread, we're reminded that Christ's body was broken for us. As we dip it in a cup, a cup that Jesus said is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Paul, Paul we're, we're, we're reminded that it had to be spilled for me first. And so in a minute, the band's going to sing. And uh, just come, take a bread, piece of bread, dip it in the cup. I mean, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that you've been forgiven. 
And it's out of that forgiveness, I mean, even that little thing about generosity that Paul brings in this text. There's a basket here. If you're planning on giving tonight, you can just drop it in there as you walk by. But let's live as the forgiven people of Jesus who need not hide or use words to keep people away, but use words to bless others. Let's pray together. Father, at this table, we acknowledge that we lived as the Gentiles did. We lived outside of the bounds of what you had for us, but by the gospel, by your son's life and death and burial and resurrection and and the announcement of that message, you have awakened us to be a part of your people. And now we're objects of your love and your care, and you want us to give that to others, especially through our words. And so use this meal to remind us of how deeply we need you so that we can be agents of that graciousness to others. Pour out your spirit on these simple gifts of bread and cup that they might become to us the very body and blood of Christ. So that in meeting you at this table, we might be Christ to those in our lives. Pray this. In the name of the one who loves us, the one who walks with us through every fire, every storm, every water, the one who forgives us, his name is Jesus. Amen. The table is open.
May your words this week be used as an instrument of blessing and not of abuse. May your inclinations and the way that your words are even shaped before they come out be shaped by the one who blessed you first. Uh, at Regen, we're a little new church start, and so in a couple minutes, we're going to have to like tear all this down, but the rule is you're not allowed to touch anything until 7.10, because some people get this idea that they need to help, and that's not true until 7.11. But until then, uh, you're loved, and we'll see you next week.